I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing okay. I just wrapped up a performance of a double bill of Puccini operas here in uh, Winston-Salem and got the scores for my next operatic project, which when uh, laid down flat, stack about three inches tall. So that's daunting, but uh, we'll get through it. But you know what? It's fun being busy. Um, I myself am up to my neck in... SpongeBob the Musical, which is a, a production that I'm doing at a local high school. And um, if nothing else, at the end of the day, it's good to be back doing something. Yes, indeed. So what are we talking about today, John? So today we're talking about Little Women, the musical. With music by Jason Howland, lyrics by Mindy Dickstein, book by Alan Nee. Little Women, the musical, is based on the novel Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Little Women opened at the Virginia Theater on January 23rd, 2005 and played 137 performances before closing on May 22nd, 2005. The show was directed by Susan H. Schulman with choreography by Michael Lichtfield and music direction by Andrew Wilder. The original Broadway cast included Sutton Foster as Joe March, Maureen McGovern as Marmy, Amy McAlexander as Amy March, Megan McGinnis as Beth March, Jenny Powers as Meg March, Danny Gerwin as Lori, John Hickok as Professor Bear, and Robert Staddle as Mr. Lawrence. Little Women was nominated for a single Tony Award for Best Actress for Sutton Foster, but did not win that award. The show opens in the lobby of Mrs. Kirk's boarding house. Josephine March, who goes by Joe, receives a notice of rejection from a publisher, her 22nd in a row. Joe asks Professor Bear, another boarder at Miss Kirk's boarding house, his opinion on her story. The professor is not entranced by her blood and gut saga. He tells her that he thinks that she can write something better. Joe angrily asks him what right he has to criticize her and insults him by calling him old. He reacts by saying that he has stated his opinion as she has hers. He leaves. Joe, left alone, wonders what could be better than the story she has written, but then she muses that perhaps her writing was better when she was home in Concord, Massachusetts. A flashback to three years earlier. Joe assembles her sisters, Meg, Beth, and Amy, to tell them that she will be putting up a show of her own called The Operatic Tragedy. The sisters beg Joe to reconsider, but Joe convinces them that this play will be a hit and will make for the best Christmas there ever was. Marmy, their mother, comes in with a letter from Mr. March, who is away as a Union chaplain in the American Civil War. As she writes a response, she reflects on how hard it is to be the pillar of strength in the March home. Aunt March, the wealthy aunt of the March sisters, 
asks Joe to leave behind her tomboy ways and become a model lady of society. To entice her, Aunt March tells Joe of her idea to travel to Europe and bring Joe along with her. Joe begs to go, but Aunt March states that she will take Joe only if she can grow up. Joe, who has always dreamed of seeing Europe, agrees. Meanwhile, Meg has one of her own dreams realized. She and Joe are invited to Annie Moffat's Valentine's Day Ball. But on the day of the ball, while the two sisters are rushing around for their finishing touches, Meg announces that she cannot go. She asks Marmy what to say when one of her potential suitors asks her to dance. Marmy tells Meg just to smile and say, I'd be delighted. Amy, who cares about society and fine things more than Joe, rushes down in Joe's old ball gown to join them in going to the ball, but Joe stops her as she is not invited. At the ball, Joe accidentally sits on Lori, who is a neighbor of the Marches, along with his grumpy grandfather, Mr. Lawrence. She apologizes to Lori and asks him why he is sitting down. Lori replies that he must have passed out from too much dancing. Lori's tutor, Mr. John Brooke, then comes in and scolds Lori for not meeting important people, which would make Mr. Lawrence furious. Mr. Brooke asks Meg to dance, and Meg agrees. Meg and Mr. Brooke are smitten at first sight. Lori confesses to Joe his need for friends and asks Joe to dance with him. Joe replies that she doesn't dance and has a patch on her dress. But Lori keeps on trying to make an impression. Back at the marches after the ball, Joe and Amy have a confrontation after it is revealed that Amy has burned Joe's story manuscript in the fireplace. Marmy sends Amy off to her bed and tells Joe that Amy is just a child. Joe spits back that Amy is not a child, but a demon in a child's body. Joe then rushes up to her attic to rewrite the story. Later, Laurie invites Joe to a skating match, which she at first refuses, but eventually agrees to. Amy wants to go with them, but she has already outgrown her pair of skates. Beth, who intends to stay home, offers Amy her old skates. Beth is sitting at the family's old piano when Mr. Lawrence comes in looking for Lori, who is out with Joe and Amy. Mr. Lawrence discovers Beth's talent at the piano and they sing a duet. Joe and Lori come in from ice skating with Amy in Lori's arms because she had fallen into the ice while skating. Joe and Amy reconcile and Joe makes Lori an honorary member of the March family. Mr. Brooke arrives to tell Meg of his enlistment in the Union Army. He then asks Meg for her hand in marriage, and Meg accepts. But Joe's life goes into a crisis when her absent father falls ill. She has a confrontation with Aunt March after she cuts and sells her hair to pay for Marmy to travel to Washington to take care of the girl's father. In return, Aunt March turns her focus to Amy, molding her to be the society lady that she envisioned for Joe. Lori visits Joe in the attic of the March home. Lori tries to kiss her, but Joe gently pushes him away. He pulls out a ring, but Joe thinks that it's a joke. Lori says that he loves Joe, 
but Joe will not accept his marriage proposal, telling the boy that she will never marry anyone. He tells her that she will marry, but not him. Joe then ponders her future, and she vows to find another way to achieve her dreams. Act two opens back at Mrs. Kirk's boarding house in New York City. Mrs. Kirk is holding a telegram for Joe from Miss March. Joe bounces in, looking for the professor. Joe then realizes that the professor is right in front of her. She tells them her fantastic news. She has made her first sale as an author. She tells them the story of the sale as well. Thanks to Professor Bear's advice, the re-edited story. Joe's mood is quickly spoiled when she reads the telegram. Beth has come down with scarlet fever. Joe immediately packs her bags and returns to Concord. After a few days, Joe sends a letter to Professor Bear asking him what's new in New York. The professor struggles to write a decent response. Back in Concord, at the nearby seashore, Beth tells Joe that she is not afraid to move on because she is loved by everyone, especially Joe, and that she is grateful to have them with her during her life. Beth dies soon after. Amy and Lori come home from Europe and struggle to tell Joe of their pending marriage because they do not wish for Joe to be upset. Joe and the family grieve Beth's death. Marmy, being the strong one, tells Joe of how she copes with Beth's death. She tells her daughter that she cannot be defeated by sadness and that she must move on. Joe reminisces while her sisters are still with her. She finds that her family and friends are themselves astonishing, and this encourages her to write her novel. On the day of Lori and Amy's wedding, Professor Bear comes to Conquer to see Joe. Joe is very surprised to see him because she never thought he would do it. He then proceeds to tell Joe of his feelings for her, saying, though we are not at all alike, you make me feel alive. He then proposes, and Joe accepts. The professor tells Joe that he sent the manuscript of her novel, named Little Women, to the weekly Volcano Press, the same publisher that accepted Joe's operatic tragedy, and that they have agreed to publish the book. So this is one of those shows that both you and I have actually done. And I was, I was telling you before we started, it feels like I just did this show, but really it has to have been at least five years since I actually worked on it. And it's curious because in rereading the uh, synopsis and, you know, reading through everything we just did, I was reminded by how strong the material seems and how compelling it should be. But I think the reality that we both agree on here is that this is not a great musical no it it isn't i mean and that you know that's honestly it's putting it gently i mean it's funny because we talked about waitress last week and i think i made the comment that this show exists and that's okay and sometimes shows just exist and they're not going to Oh, what's the way I want to put it? They're not going to be exceptional, but they're they're steadfast, they're good, they're enjoyable. Little Women, the musical, 
is kind of like that for me, but probably less so than Waitress. It's, this show exists. I think there are a couple of good tunes in this show, and I know we're going to get into that in a couple minutes where you're probably going to disagree with me, um, and that's okay. This show fails at the fundamental level, I think, because of its source material. At this point, if you have grown up in the U.S. between, oh God, I mean, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, the teens, whatever, and at some point in high school or middle school, you had to read Little Women. Like, I remember being a freshman in high school and as part of English class, being required to read Little Women. And it's a wonderful book. It's a brilliant book because it fleshes out so much of the characters. It fleshes out each of the sisters and their motivations, but also their weaknesses and their fears. And it really is an exceptional story with exceptional characters. And we maybe get the top 10% of that in the musical. Like we get 2D tintypes of the characters in this show. And as a consequence, I don't know that I care about their trials and tribulations like I did when I read the book because the, the, the musical for me doesn't bother to flesh them out enough to make it matter. I will offer a contrary viewpoint that will get us to the same place, but from a different perspective because I did not have to read this growing up. Uh, I really, I mean, I had heard of Little Women. I didn't know anything about and I hadn't seen any of the adaptations until I sat down to work on this show. Um, And for me, not having the background of what those characters actually were, I just found this story to be just too far reaching. Like, there's so much that's being covered in such a short amount of time. There's no way they could have spent any more time fleshing out the characters. Otherwise the show would have gone on for eight hours. And because they're covering such a broad swath of time and they're dealing with characters who are incredibly complex characters. And even in the musical, they are complex characters they have to move through things so quickly, you don't get time as an audience member to really process how everything is impactful to these people. So the shift, like for example, between Laurie and Joe and their relationship, that all builds up really, really quickly in the musical. And then their reactions to everything that happened just feel kind of out of proportion to what you have seen in the show. I'm sure in the book that makes a lot more sense. In the musical, it all just feels like everyone is existing at 10 all the time and we never really get to see them as the human characters that they are. I'm going to argue with you by agreeing with you. Um, I will take exception to one thing you said about how everyone, at least in some form, is fleshed out whether it's quickly or not. There are a couple of characters in this show that exist, I feel, to to have some great songs. Um, Marmy is an integral character in the story. And she has 
her song in act one and she has her song in act two. And that's all I remember about the character. Like there is so little time devoted to her. Um, And again, I think you're right in the sense that there's so much there that it would have maybe been impossible to put more in, but like, would, would the role have even been memorable in any sense if Maureen McGovern wasn't singing that role on its Broadway run? I mean, the songs are okay that she sings, but they're, they're the, these powerful dim the lights, stand in a spotlight, almost numbers. Correction, you have to sit at a desk writing the letter for the first song. Okay, yes, you are 100% correct. But that, but that's, I, ultimately, that's the crux of my issue with this show, is that so much matters, so much is important, and we don't, so much of what should be important ends up being reductive. Um, Marmy is integral she is so important because not only is she the four sisters mom she's the only parental figure we see in the show because the father is always absent he is he is referred to in letters and in passing and that's it but it's you know in the in the book she is the guiding light she is their lighthouse she is their protector they she is their keeper it doesn't come off that way in this musical at all. Like they have glossed over it so much. Um, And it's funny that you bring up Lori and Joe's relationship because you want to talk about a fast relationship. How about Lori and Professor Bear? Like their acquaintances, their acquaintances, their acquaintances, and they're engaged. You mean Joe and Professor Bear? What did I say? Lori. Yeah. Joe and Professor Bear. I mean, but that's just, that's just it. I mean, okay, yeah, John does stupid slip number ninety-seven. Oh, it's true. That's I mean that 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 does feel very strange. And I just I don't I don't care, and I want to care. This is a good story with at times some good music, and there are no stakes. You know, and when they try and and they try to put these stakes, they almost come off as artificial. You know, it is, there is some good music in this show, though. I agree. Um, As as much as I feel, again, there's a bit of an artificiality about it, but the scene with Beth and Joe at the seaside right before Beth dies. Yeah, is what is actually, the name of that song? We only ever called it Beth Death when we were rehearsing it. Oh man, you would ask me that. I'm Googling um, it now. Okay. But like it's an actual honestly beautiful number. And you know, and then when the kite you you see the kite flying and then the oh God. In, some things in, are meant to be. Some things are meant to be, yeah. You know, yeah, and then at the song. end and the, and the kite goes away and that's like, that's Beth dying. And it's like, yeah, that's okay, heartbreaking. It it's is. heartbreaking. You've set it up purely as a contrivance, but it's heartbreaking. And um, I mean, here alone, Marmy's first act song. That's also a good song. Yes, but I feel like Days of Plenty 
is a significantly better song, especially for Marmy. Fair. Um, which brings us to the song. Wait, wait, wait. No, before nope. we get to that one, are we, we, are we to, not we getting there yet? Okay. The coin, though, because we're going to get to that one. But we, so we just said two really good songs. There are some absolute shit songs too, though. Oh, God. Yeah. We can't let them slide. How about the penultimate song, Small Umbrella in the Rain? Yes. No, I'm, I'm not only am I right there with you, but again, it's a crappy song on two levels. One, it's not a great song. And two, it's like, oh, this guy we've talked about in passing and has been in like three scenes. Oh, look, he's about to propose. Like, huh? Maybe, maybe give him another song or something that, you know, helps. Well, I mean, he does have that, that how I am little bit where he's writing the letter in response to Joe, but it's so utterly forgettable that like it barely even made it into the synopsis. I I, I guess calling it a, a terrible song is maybe a little harsh because it fits its purpose, but off to Massachusetts is terrible. The little thing that the ditty that they play at the piano off to Massachusetts. Oh, yes, where right. off to where the whatever the word is. Yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot. The worst earworm in the world. I totally forgot the song, song existed, to be honest. Like somehow I had blocked the fact that that song existed out of my mind. And I listened to this cast album this week to remind myself of the show before. And, and, and again, it's just one ear out the other. Like, okay, sure. That's, and, that's great. And I need to go on one more rant before we get to the big song from this show. Uh, I mentioned it in the synopsis when the girls are scared about going to the dance and not really sure about how to act, Marmy tells them to just smile and say, I'd be delighted. And I have to say it that way because the way we say that word in English is delighted. And the first syllable is a schwa. It doesn't have a shape. It's not a pure vowel. It's delighted. It's delighted. However, the way it is set musically and sung over and over and over and over and over in that song is I'd be delighted. And it's really, really extended. And you can't tune a schwa because there's not a vowel shape there and the girls have to sing it together. So if they have to sing it together, they have to sing a vowel. So you have to change the way we pronounce the word in the English language in order for them to sing in tune. Because if it was one of them, they could go, I'd be delighted. And they'd sound like a dumbass, which they do in the cast recording, by the way, it's terrible. However, if you want to sing it on a pitch and sing it in tune together, you have to sing delighted not english and it's a whole song where they have to sing in not english to be able to produce musical pitch and i had to hound my cast on this because they had to be able to sing in tune and it became so ridiculous that we just had to emphasize the delightedness of it all in our performance and it was infuriating don't hold back, John. Tell us how you really feel. I just feel like if you're going to set text, you should be able to do it in your language. That's how I feel. I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, you would think that would be a prerequisite, but 
Apparently not. Which brings us to the song. For those of you who are practitioners of theater, you know what's coming. There's a song in this show that has become so ubiquitous within musical theater that this might slightly be hyperbole, but I don't think it is. I have heard this song at every amateur casting call I have done in the last decade, at least, longer. Let's see, the show came out in, what did we say, 2005? So fifteen, almost 15 years now, actually. Yeah. Astonishing. So thanks for that, creative team. Um, it's, it's an okay song. It's very declamatory. It closes act one. It's a powerful moment in theory for the character who has, to be fair, already had several powerful moments so effectiveness aside, this song has, it's, it is the Golden Age style-esque equivalent of On My Own from Les Mis, which is another song that is only slightly hyperbolic in saying, I think I've heard it at every amateur casting call I've done in the past 15 years. Probably true. And it's okay. Like it's, it's a good song. It, if you can sing it, it will show off your voice outside of the context of the show. It exists. Well, to be fair in the context of the show, it exists. I mean, in the context of the show, it's a good way to bring act one to a climactic finish. But the the simple reality is People think that song is a lot better than it is. It's very complexly uh, structured and built. And it's really tricky to pace that song in a way that actually tells a compelling story. And I think in terms of an audition piece, which you're right, everyone sings it, or at least one person sings it at every audition that you hold, it's really easy to do a very, very bad job. Especially at the very end. There's the line, something about, oh God, how does it go? Something Christopher Columbus. It doesn't matter. You just scream Christopher Columbus. You just, yeah, that. but that's it. You just basically scream Christopher And it's like, it's not pitched. It is an exclamation in the song. It's singing, 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 Christopher Columbus, singing, singing, singing. <laughs> and I just like, you know, and, and there's always this discussion and without going too far off the rails, I'm going to go off on my own little rant right now. There's always this discussion in auditioning of there are certain songs that you should quote unquote, not sing. Astonishing is always one of them, even though it's, always there on my own is one of those even though it's always there if i loved Um, you if i loved you i didn't know i didn't realize that was so i don't know that i've heard that one as much but anyway i am of the personal opinion and this is this probably sets me apart from a decent amount of people at the amateur level i don't care what you sing sing from not the show sing from the show Sing Astonishing, sing On My Own, sing In My Own Little Corner, sing Happy Birthday. Maybe not Happy Birthday, 
But at anything less than the professional level, you need to prepare something ideally in the style of the show that shows off your voice, that shows in 16 or 32 bars, whatever that audition calls for, why you should be cast because you are a vocal badass. And so for people who say, well, you should never sing this because it's overdone and you don't want to be compared to someone else who's, you know, singing the same audition. I don't, I don't buy into that. That being said, I feel like so many people have astonishing in their books because they feel like it's obligatory to have astonishing in their books. And as a consequence, they sing it at auditions because they feel obligated to sing it at auditions. Sing whatever you want, whether you think it's overdone or not, but you have to do it well. And astonishing for me has become so memorable in so many auditions because it's not sung well. Like I said, it's a really easy song to sing poorly. It is, it is really, really hard to sing that song and actually make it a compelling and well-timed and well-paced story. Yeah, I mean, heck, you can listen to the cast album and I, I don't even think Sutton Foster, it, it shows off Sutton Foster at her best. And she's Sutton freaking Foster. There's very little she can do poorly. And I don't want to go as far as saying she sings it poorly, but I'm not like, oh, wow, holy crap. This is like, sing it. It just, it is, it just exists. And Yeah, I mean, I, now I will say it can be done well. I do think, if I may ever so humbly say that in the performance that I did of this song, we got it to a, a really good place where it, felt like an appropriate way to end an act, but it was a lot of work. And the singer worked very, very hard to perform the song and the orchestra gave everything they could to sell the song. And I milked every little ounce of tiny music that I could find out of that piece to make it something worth bringing in a blackout because it has to end an act. And let me tell you, I, God bless my singer. Cause she really knew to take a giant breath there before the end, but I made those last few measures longer and longer and longer every single night because it ends <laughs> with astonishing. And then the orchestra goes, I swear to God, that got slower every <laughs> single performance. I was like, she's still singing. We're fine. I'm going to subdivide a little bit more. We're going to dictate each one of these chords. I mean, that was maybe 20, 30 seconds of music by the time we got to our final show. It's kind of funny because I remember doing the exact opposite. Like, oh. I remember just pushing through, like, astonishing, ba, 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 cut off. <laughs> Like, like, it just like, get it done, get it, get it done, get it over with, drop the curtain, black out the lights, let the people go buy their M&Ms. <sighs> <laughs> but now, now that we've talked about this song and its questionable merit, I have to bring up my complaint with every bit of music that follows Astonishing for the remainder of this show, because as, as we've sung a couple of times now, this, this lick 
appears numerous times throughout Astonishing, and it's ba 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 ba. It just kind of it does that several times. For the rest of the show, the composer thought they were being very clever by just peppering that little little lick, that little dum dum ba ba in everywhere. Over the goddamn place in little, like just instrumental little things. It's just, it's everywhere and it's not clever. It's not as smart as they think it is. And it's just exhausting. It almost comes across as kind of like the classical tradition of leitmotif, but again, with no context, no, nothing else in the show to kind of parallel alongside it. You're right. It comes off as being clever for the sake of being clever. And as it doesn't really reach that. It's not, it's not really a leitmotif. It, it doesn't really represent anything. It, it's a callback. Like we remember, oh yeah, okay, that, that song again. But that's it. You know, we just get those five or six notes. And that's like, it, it, it tries to be deep without actually being deep. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it... I feel like I complained about this when we did Into the Woods. Wait, have we done a show on Into the Woods? We have not done Into the Woods yet. Oh, okay. So I just complain about this in my day-to-day life. <laughs> Into the Woods does the same thing where the whole show is based around like five pitches. Bum, 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 bum. That, like the entire oh, yeah. show is constructed off of those five notes. Yeah, you're not wrong. It because but, it's like the magic beans, it's Cinderella, right. it's the clock, it's yeah, no, you're no, the whole show is literally constructed bah, 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 off those five bah, bah, notes. Bah, bah, I bah, did bah. like a Pepe Silva crazy person rant when I taught this uh piece <laughs> in my music theater history class. But <laughs> because it's Sondheim, it's exceptionally cleverly, brilliantly done. Uh Jason Howland is a better composer than me. What is not Stephen Sondheim? No, no. And to be fair, no, no one, no one is. And credit for effort, maybe not for execution. Yeah. Okay. So before I tell my last funny story from my production of this show, is there anything else we need to say seriously about this show? I guess to sum up kind of, my rantings of the last several minutes. I don't hate this show. I don't like this show. I think it's a show that serves a purpose and it it has found a niche audience and it's actually found a niche circle of theater types to be performed in. But again, it's just another show for me that just exists. Yeah, I think it it is as much of a letdown as it is because the source material is so strong and it could be such a compelling story it's just not period it's just not okay Um, story time but that being said uh you know i i don't know maybe you're a better person than me but uh i enjoy being a part of musicals i enjoy being a part of the rehearsal process but i typically find myself by the shows looking for ways to entertain myself because I've kind of done my work and now my job is just to sort of tell everyone when to begin and be there in case something goes off the rails to be able to address it in the moment. Um, so we, we had a really good cast for this show. They were great people. They were doing really good work and I felt comfortable with them to be able to do the show and, and be professional and be great performers. 
and also for me to be able to mess with them. So one night, uh, there's that whole scene where Amy burns Joe's stories. And then uh, in a feeble attempt to apologize, Amy, uh, I can't remember, does she try to write her own stories or does she tries to draw she her does. picture, I think? I, I think it started out with writing stories and ends with drawing a picture. So she she tries to write these stories and she sort of hands them to Joe and she goes, I'm sorry, you know, I, I tried to write your story, but I just, you know, I wasn't very good. And I'm sitting down in the pit watching them do this dialogue scene and I grab my baton like just in my fist and hold it up against an imaginary piece of paper and just start like scrolling around like, oh, I can't write, oh no. And I nearly broke the entire stage in the middle of that scene. I could see them all seeing me out of the corner of their eyes, like mocking Amy's inability to write. And they were all barely able to keep it together. And it was just such a satisfying little moment because they didn't break, they got through the scene. But I was, I was tickled with myself for that. You know what? Sometimes we find our entertainment the way wherever we can get it. I mean, and if that means entertaining ourselves, that means entertaining ourselves. Okay, before we wrap this up, is there anything you want to kind of sum up in your thoughts on this? Um, nah, I think we've 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 been pretty fair. So, if you're interested in learning more about Little Women. And you know what? I'm going to go out and say, you know what? You should listen to this. Like, if nothing else, the highlights of Volcano Weekly Press, astonishing if you're not already intimately familiar with it, uh, Five Forever. I mean, there, there are a handful of songs in this show that are enjoyable. And the, the original Broadway cast, to be fair, has Maureen McGovern and Sutton Foster, who are two performers who have an ability to make something out of little. So go ahead, listen to this. Just be aware there are a couple of things you may end up wanting to skip. And you know what? That's okay. Or if you don't have that much time, but do have a minute and a half, hop on YouTube, search for compilation of girls screaming Christopher Columbus and enjoy yourself. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.